Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Hey, what's up? It's Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Grammy-nominated songwriter Drew Falconry DeCaro, recently known for M by Hold's number one hot AC song, Numb Little Bug, has signed a publishing deal with Position Music. Cobalt is set to become the first global music publisher to release a set of fully licensed direct-to-fan NFTs with a music lyric NFT collection called an Electro Revival. Music industry veteran Allison Hamamura has left Anthem Entertainment to join 1RPM as the general manager of its Los Angeles office, additionally taking the role of vice president of A&R. Shazam has launched national top 200 charts in 17 new countries across Africa and Asia, including new city charts for each country. TikTok rival Triller is being sued by superstar producers Timbaland and Swizz Beats for missing payments related to Triller's acquisition of their song battle brand Verses, which Triller acquired in early 2021. Camp LA 2022 will be held at the Rose Bowl Stadium, delivered by October 15th through 16th, and will consist of one of the biggest live music K-pop experiences in history with Monsta X, EXO's Kai and Gion Somi, Super Juniors, and more. A new report by U.S. market monitor Luminate shows that consumers in the U.S. spend almost 60% of their leisure time on platforms with advertisements. Warner Recorded Music has entered a global joint venture with Lee Daniels Music, spearheaded by director, writer, and producer Lee Daniels. Monty Olson has joined Litmus Music as president. Los Angeles-based China-focused marketing company East Goes Global has closed a $1 million seed funding round. The company says that it is now valued at $10 million. Capitol Records has signed virtual artist FN Mecca, who was created using thousands of data points compiled from video games and social media and has over 10 million followers on TikTok. Lamont Dozier, one of the greatest and most successful songwriters to emerge at Motown in the 60s, has sadly passed away at the age of 81. A big thank you to Hannah Rosenberg of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This week's iconic grassroots songwriter, producer, artist has garnered a fanatical following. He's the kind of artist that epitomizes a sound so much that seemingly every male artist since has been compared to his eclectic mix of alt, reggae, soul, R&B, folk, rock, etc., etc., He's in every A&R's vinyl collection because this writer is an original with seven LP releases. He has toured for over 20 years and performed at sold-out theaters and ballrooms across the country. All the way from here, uh, amongst many other places, this artist is a model for artistic integrity. And the writer is one of my faves, Clarence Greenwood, a.k.a. Citizen Cope. What's going on, Ross? Thank you. Beautiful introduction. I appreciate that. Hey, man. I, I mean, I want to go and tell your story, but before we even start, I don't know. Um, this is an interesting interview because you've done, you've released so much music that, I mean, I was in a meeting this morning and I said, that we were doing this interview and it's like a whole room of people just being like, Oh man, I love, I have, and they're talking about this album and that album and this record and that record. 
it's like your your reach within Muso fans is just is you know incomparable. So this is this is rad. I'm excited. Well, let's start from the beginning. Um, you were born in Memphis, which is obviously a, a pretty famous music town, uh, but you weren't raised there. Uh, tell me about your childhood from, you know, that is sort of like an epicenter of, of music. Well, yeah, it's interesting. My mother's family was from Memphis and uh, I was just born there. And, and I, growing up, I was, I was always, when people say, where are you from? Because I would be in DC and I would have kind of a Southern accent because most of the people that raised me had deep Southern accents. And so, uh, including my mother. And, uh, so I would, I would always just say, I was, I thought that where were you from? It's like, I was born in Memphis. So, but I, I was raised in DC. So I'm, 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 I really don't have any re- recollection of Memphis, but later on, like really started getting, into the sound of Memphis, which was like Willie Mitchell's production. A friend of mine turned me on to his records uh, when I was living in Austin. And, you know, I'd obviously heard the Al Green stuff, but didn't really get into it heavy. And, you know, of course they had all the stack stuff and, and um, I knew, I knew of Elvis because of just his iconic status and everything like that. And, Jerry Lee Lewis, but also the great musicians like Steve Cropper and uh, Duck Don and and all the great drummers and musicians that comprised of uh, all the stuff that High Records did from back in the day, which I thought was, you know, kind of weird that I was born there, but I ended up becoming a huge fan of the music that came out of, of that city and that region. Your parents didn't play music, right? No. But you have such knowledge of those roots where you come from. Did they listen to a lot of music or is that really something you had to find on your own? No, they had a lot of music. They listened to a lot of music. I guess, I guess that's the case with everyone. They had a good vinyl collection and then, you know, um, was around my father. He would have a eight track you know, in the, in the car and, you know, always playing something. And, you know, my mom had a lot of vinyl. So what what car did your dad have that he had an eight track in it? Cadillac. (laughs) You have like a specific, if I think of my dad's, the music we would listen to in my dad's car, it was, it was always like Derek and the dominoes or maybe like Fleetwood Mac or something like that. But what do you think of when you think of like what, what the what a track would he put in? I think a lot of Otis Redding. Yeah. Played Otis Redding a lot. It kind of makes sense knowing where you go musically later. I mean, you don't really start your process of writing music until you're basically done with high school, right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't I mean I played trumpet in elementary school and tried to pick up the guitar with you know, friends had guitars and, and stuff like that that would kind of like quote jam or whatever. But, you know, te- taught me a couple things like bar chords and stuff like that. And had a lot of fun just, you know, trying to learn uh, Southern Man or something, a Neil Young song. And uh, and then kind of kind of got into poetry after high school just started had had some events happen and uh you know these words came and i i i didn't you know i didn't really do anything particularly well going up until learning how to or just writing you know in general what were the events uh i had just a close uh family relative was my uh my Kind of my father figure passed away when I was right out of high school and got sick right after that. So I stayed, I stayed, you know, I didn't go to college. So I stayed with him in a small town called Vernon and I was named after him and kind of was great experience just having the the last time with him. And, you know, he was such an inspiration. He's just a hard worker and, and a good man, you know, 
just very simple kind of West Texas, you know, guy. When you say when you say that, you know, he was inspiring or encouraging. Did you ever play, read him any of the poetry, or was it all a reaction to losing him? Yeah, it was a reaction to lose. I think that's the a light bulb kind of came out because it was kind of a cathartic moment when I was in you know, to view his, his body after he passed away. And I was there when he died. So it was an interesting thing of like, like this most, cathar- I don't know I explain it, but, you know, it's just all these emotions came up and it's just like sobbing for a long time. So it was like, I haven't, you know, luckily experienced anything like that since, but there was something freeing that happened in that moment. And, um, I started writing poetry and I just like, didn't, it just came out. It was just a weird thing. You know, it was like the words just, just happened. I didn't, I didn't like look over and edit it or any, anything like that. And I was like, wow, that's kind of, that's kind of weird that I wrote that. And then that developed into like, I had a huge love for like drum machines and stuff like that. And hip hop was coming up. And so I wanted to, <clears throat> you know, I got a drum machine and 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 then a friend got like one of those Tascam 424 um, four tracks, and I was like, I used his sometimes, and then I got one, and and ended up getting a sampler, and started learning about production and listening to a lot of records, and you know, then got into like collecting vinyl and stuff like that. So, you know, at first it was just such a mystery to me about how to make a record. Excuse me. That's it. Um, did you were you still in West Texas while you were doing all that? No, no, no. I, I just stayed okay. there for two years and I went to a year at Texas Tech and then decided I was just gonna actually I had a really good class, a writing class, and just decided I was gonna um pursue music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But where are you doing, you know, to, you know, I, I think I had my task M in my parents' house and, you know, it wasn't until I moved out to LA where I brought it. I still have it out here. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I cut my teeth in a, in a, in a, in like an empty bedroom that my sister. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't start recording or anything like that in the house or I didn't have a place. So it was like, I didn't, after I wrote the poetry, it wasn't like the music just came, but I just started writing. And then like, that was what led to that. When I moved from Lubbock, I moved to Austin, Texas, where I started like, you know, went to the studio and like cranked out a demo with the drum machine they had and a, and a sample that I wanted to use. And, kind of did a couple demos like that and then started like there were producers down in Austin and worked with them a little bit. And then, you know, I had a place and I just put my gear up and just woodshed it. Had you performed at all um, at that point or were you just recording? Just recording. And I don't even think I had any interest in performing or any kind of like, that just wasn't what I was thinking about at that time uh i was just more into being a writing songs and actually just learning it you know maybe being a producer i didn't even think of like oh this is going to turn into anything it was just kind of something that i thought was cool and then when i started doing more of it and then like it was it was good then it was like kind of looked i i started to think about it 
who told you it was good besides, I mean, we all think that we're doing something okay or we think it's all trash, one or the other. But somebody outside of you is like, hey, you should send this to, you know, I mean, obviously it's a leap to go from Austin to getting, you know, to start signing with labels. And I know you had a few of these, you know, random songs coming out on stuff before we got your debut album. But there's a that's a big jump from recording with producers around Austin to record deals. Like it seems like that's an easy thing, but. Oh no, that's not really how it happened. Like really the Austin thing was like the really pre precursor. And actually I did do a show with the old black cat in Austin uh, where Matt Looney promoted it. It was kind of funny, but I was part of a whole crew of people, but I, I, I was so in, like, uh, I was just learning the samplers and stuff and learning structure of songs and then, like, kind of kind of doing that. And I bought... On your, on your own or is someone actually showing you song structure? No, I mean, I learned it through, like, sequences and stuff. So it was kind of weird to, like, when I started sampling records, it was like, okay, I didn't even know what a sequence was or anything like that. So I had a friend that had the same Insonic keyboard that I bought and, and I called him all the time. He's like, read the manual, read the manual. I'm like, I just, you know, I can't understand it. So, um, pretty much got into doing that and learning, you know, sampling old Willie Mitchell records and kind of like learning song structure that way. Uh, and, 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 Oh, I always wrote like the verse or whatever. And then like, I started with the guitar and then, I came up and made this demo and there was a guy at a record store um, I, that I bought a record from about an artist that was from DC. It was called Basehead. I got the demo to him from his friend who worked at the radio station. And he was like, he really liked my demo and asked me to be part of his touring band to run the, you know, samplers and do some DJ and stuff. And it was kind of like, it was a young guy that, had had gotten a lot of hype on a record that he made at Howard University, and it just kind of like came into something really cool. And then that step led to me kind of throwing, stop using all the samplers and just picking my guitar back up. You know that I hadn't touched. You know since I was younger, and 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 writing from that perspective, and you know. How old were you during all this? I mean, I guess I never really asked how old you were in the different stages, but by the time you're on tour, you know. When I was on tour with Basehead, it was like I was 22, 23. So then that kind of closed down and I'd still, like one of my demos had caught like the eye of a, a producer, like this guy Herbie Lovebug who did Salt and Pepper and they wanted to do a production deal. So there was like always a little bit of something around, like ever since I started making demos that like, and and the 930 club would ask me to perform live and I, I didn't have a band or anything. So I was like, well, um, and she started, Lisa White started, is like, I'm not going to give you any more if you don't take these shows. So it was like 24, 25, I started taking live shows and developing the non-sample version of what Citizen Cope was. And so that was more dealing with like heavy drums, but not, not, um, and, and not loops or anything like that. And then, and then like, uh, I was sending tapes to everyone. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, pretty much any, any A&R person, any sending tapes that never would probably get there and then calling everybody and they didn't want to answer. And then I sent a tape. I was going to do a deal with a, just a small independent label and they like, we can't do it, but I'll send it to Capitol records to the VP's office directly. But it ended up in the non solicited pile, which if you don't know is, you know, basically where, the tapes go to die. It's and, the uh, it's the DMs of uh, <laughs> pre- previous to to Instagram. It's it's where it's it's the DMs no one replies to <laughs> for sure. 
Yeah, it's that pile of songs no one will listen to. Yeah. And Mar- and Marshall Altman got it. And at the same time, there was another uh, company that was kind of snuffing around. And, and I was like 26, 27. And Marshall's really liked it. And it was like, he ended up getting, a, uh, getting me a demo deal. And then I did the demo deal for him. And somebody else came to see me from polygram at the time and they offered me a deal i didn't even have a manager so so you did all of it on your own right well i mean i just guess i made the music and and there wasn't really much to manage at that time except you know so shopping a demo and that's hard enough for anyone to do i feel like people have uh, ways that they try to describe citizen cope and obviously you've evolved if you listen to the album that came out most recently compared to where you started, you know, but what do you think it was at the time that, you know, it's like when people finally listen, whenever someone listened to you, they're like, ah, they gave it to somebody else. Like that's the biggest compliment you could have. Right. You know, what was it that you were doing that was different than everybody else you know, in the nineties and early two thousands. I think it just comes from like, uh, trying to, trying to, um, describe your, your existence and, and, and kind of get to who you are really. And lyrically you're talking about lyrically and musically and just kind of like, who are you as an artist? And, and sometimes, you know, if you're not going to follow trends, but also that I was excited about what was going on at that time and still am with current music, but um, it was, it was more like, I think I didn't have a great voice. I didn't play guitar great, but I was into making cool records and, and, uh, and I had a perspective and I think people kind of identified with like, Oh, this guy just is talking about his life. And, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it definitely it comes across so honest. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. It's like when you're you know, when you you're you aren't going as you know, under your name, it's Citizen Cope, which almost a way like I feel like when you when you're behind a band name or an artist name, you can kind of be even more vulnerable lyrically. You know, it, there's like a uh I don't know. There's like a, it's like a, a shield between. Yeah, it's a facade. It's like whatever, not a facade, but it's a whatever. It's a stage persona, or, or I just didn't. I was like, who's Clarence Greenwood? When I sent these tapes out, I was like, I'm not, I'm not anybody. Usually, like somebody goes solo because they they were in a band or something, or they were a big songwriter or a big producer or part of a musical entity. Where does Citizen Cope as a name come from? I was just thinking about Cope is my nickname, short for Copeland. And uh, and I was, you know, it heard of Citizen Kane and I just thought, well, maybe Citizen Cope. I yeah, I mean, it works. People remember it. So, I mean, that's the that's the goal. So you, you finally, you know, like, you, Marshall digs through the pile Here's your record, gets you a demo deal. You get seen by Polygram, which isn't that that became DreamWorks, right? No, that was I was bonded at the time. That was way before DreamWorks. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um like you end up going label to label. What is the journey of an artist who has to go? Like why 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 did you go from capital to polygram and then continue on. Well, I think any artist, one thing we don't realize is that when you sign a deal, you have to like to actually get the record out. You have to have like your, the distributor of the company, like order a bunch of copies. So at first I never realized why, you know, when I did the record for capital and they didn't put it out at least to try to, but there's an expense to that. They don't get reimbursed for their expense unless the distributor 
pays them in advance to do it for the marketing and promotion of it. And a lot of times they don't, you know, so with capital, it was just like, I didn't make the record that I probably should have. And what does that mean? I don't know. It was just kind of a deep concept album, you know, and, and I, I looked at it like an underground pop record, uh, kind of dealing with, uh, the state of the world, the prison system, uh, you know, suicide, uh, the country, um, kind of like the shotgun. It was called shotguns and it was the shotgun as kind of a symbol, an American symbol of fear. And so it was kind of like the deepest kind of conceptual album that I think I ever tried to like put together. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the pace and the tempo and I did, some of the stuff I did, the demos were really good in the studio. And then I was like, oh, I got a deal. I can go to New York and put it good on SSL. But like some of those demos were just, I probably should have just recorded. But it's just basic early first kind of artist thing to happen sometimes. And it, you know, the record was, I didn't have like a record man. Like my biggest record man was Marshall. He was like a junior A&R person. So, and he didn't even get assigned the record. So I think, I think any artist really needs um, kind of that person in the system that is, 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 is home team and really fights for them. And that is, that's advice that in, you know, however many episodes we've done, I feel like people tend to think A&R people are stupid. And a lot of times, you know, cliches are true, but a good A&R guy is somebody who can really help that artist see their vision and actually get music out in the universe and have it. Well, there's no, there's no, there's no record without the record man. Yeah. And the record man can be the producer or the A&R, the president of the label. I mean, there's no doubt that David Geffen had a lot to do with the success of, of some of his, most of his artists. And there's no doubt that, Ahmed Erdogan did, and there's no doubt that L.A. Reid did, and there's no ra- doubt that Lenny Walker and Mo Austin did. They took a they took a, a deep love for what they did. There's no doubt that you know the guys at Rockefeller did the same. The guys at at Lior and all, all these all these people are important to a lot of artists. It wasn't just like some guy running around that could make dreams happen. It was like it goes a lot deeper than that, like your first initial record deal. Do you find yourself, you know, you named, you know, probably the biggest icons in label history. Are you a student of the industry? Do you like the industry? Do you, like, I wouldn't think of Citizen Cope as, as you know, knowing how you've been artistically unique your whole career. I wouldn't think that you were somebody who necessarily was so tapped into all these, you know, how the business works. How did, well, is this I, something you're passionate about or is it something just from having been around that you kind of pick up on? I mean, where does this come from? This is all like really savvy information. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm passionate about how great records are made. And a lot of times those great records are, are, are part of a, a whole team. So it's like, I guess that like, it, it makes me excited about what um, Barry Gordy did at, at Motown. It makes me excited about what, you know, in that process and just not even that, the guys that played on the records and the guys that produced the records and and the women that, that were involved in that and the artists and everything. So I think it's like kind of a, an interesting scope, but I've kind of had to be on that industry side because I had to go to three or four different companies before it's been, it was just all messed up. Well, let's jump to like to DreamWorks, which is really sort of the first time I think, you know, in mass that people become familiar with who you are. Uh, DreamWorks in 2000 is, you know, maybe the hottest label in the business. Um, what you know? I guess tell me about that era of being signed to DreamWorks, and you know, well, yeah, I was like I got dropped from Capital, and I called 
bunch of people and I wasn't really getting any any love from anybody and 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 I called up uh, I was a big Randy Newman fan so yeah. I read his stuff and it said Lenny, Lenny Walker and I knew he was over DreamWorks or whatever and moved from Warner Brothers and worked with a lot of iconic artists and that's one thing I felt like I didn't have my person and I cold called him and, and Gail Pearson, who was his assistant, um, after talking to her, I, I, you know, she walked into Lenny Walker's office and said, Lenny, I've never done this. I'll never do it again. But something tells me you have to talk to this guy. And and um, he's an artist. And and I talked to him and and he just he was like all right well i'll demo something he listened to the music and he's like i'll 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 do another demo situation then i did the demo and made that song if there's love with um neil pogue down in atlanta who worked with outcast and stuff and i love the way the record sound and i felt like i had a big song so i went down there and cut it at usher's house uh i think lenny gave me like five thousand dollars and you know Went down there, cut the record, and um, sent it back. And they didn't. They didn't. They were like, you know, we just don't have anyone here that's. I like it, but there's no one here that's going to push it. And uh, John Lachey, who I met through Bob Y, it it one of the stations. See, I pushed. Like I went to radio stations. Like I was giving people. I met you know tapes. I was calling people. Like I was very active in trying to push the music. So I was like, Bob Y introduced me to this guy, John Lachey, who shopped the demo. And next thing you know, I had like, for the, the stuff that DreamWorks paid for, I had offers from a whole bunch of companies. And then um, essentially, you know, Lior and Jimmy Ivan got in and uh, stupidly, I signed with DreamWorks. <laughs> You know, but man, we, you, it wasn't stupid. Like, what are you going to do, man? At that time, that made a lot of sense. I know it did make a lot of sense. Um, I actually wasn't stupid. I knew that Lenny was the type of guy that I could call up and he would answer and I'd write a song for him. And I feel really blessed for that experience. I think Mm -hmm. that like that staff is like invaluable to be able to say, Hey, you know, I, I called him in. It was off cycle, but I sang him sideways, and he said, "Go record it." And um, you know, it was. I think it got a couple people in the company pissed because I was I just already made my record and and it was off like record cycle or whatever. There wasn't a budget open, whatever. It was kind of like got political, but I went to cut the song. And uh, so you recorded sideways. Is that before? You recorded it before Let the Drummer Kick came out? No, I yeah. Well, the first record came out and then off it had come up in the offsite. I got off it. Cycle, right. I, I I recorded. Um no, actually to tell you the truth, I brought that song into them and they were like, Oh, it's pretty cool. And I was like, No, this is a big song. So you guys already got drummer, you got If There's Love, you got you got like three songs on there that are going to do well. So I was like, let me hold this back. And, um, and I, then they all, and then the next record, I brought songs going to rise in for the next and sideways for the next record. I didn't get the vibe from them. And I just, and side and Santana loved sideways and he put it on Shaman, his record after supernatural and kind of, uh, embraced it. And I met all the heirs to people and I was like, oh, this is a real record company. Like they're trying to win, you know? And it, that's just one thing I feel that DreamWorks wasn't really, they didn't have a marketing or promotion strategy. It was just like a lot of really good record people or a couple of good record people. And and they didn't, they didn't have, they weren't really playing ball. They had money, but they didn't know. They didn't. No, really, no. it was a really weird time in the business too. Um, you know that 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 era is right when, like Napster starts out. You know, there's all this poaching music. The industry is making a lot of money still because it's still you know 
some of these big pop artists are selling 20 million albums worldwide. But so there was like money coming in, but there was this hint of like, though the business is going to go, you know, for sideways, but it's going to go and do some shit that's complicated. And so it's, you know, labels were turning over really quickly over the next, from like 2000 to basically 2010. It's just labels are folding, getting bought up. People are ending up here. They're ending up there. Artists are ending up on all these different labels. And if you you hear about the ones that were really successful, but underneath there was just, it was kind of crazy. I don't think the business was like that in the sixties, you know, so like everyone knew exactly where they were and, and those A&R people stayed there for like 15, 20 years, which is the two thousands was like, who knew where. Yeah. I mean, it just got, it got corporate so that they, everything was about market share. So, I mean, there was tons of bands getting like, I think DreamWorks had like probably signed 80 bands. I don't think any of them really, there's probably like a handful of them. that's still. Yeah. It's crazy. And uh, talking about the music a little bit, Let the Drummer Kick is on, you know, it's like on, I have a playlist of songs that are just the like the cool songs that I, you know, over my lifetime, then oh, these songs are the cool songs. You know, when that song comes out, it really was a, it feels like it was, you know, it moved the needle a lot for you it was, you had to have heard it out in public. It had to be the first time where you heard actual, you know, I mean, before Santana comes in your life, you actually have like a solo record that seems to have done pretty well. I mean, it's... That record's stiffed. Well, how, why do we all know it then? That song came to life after I left DreamWorks. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I'm blessed about that song. I got to give Jeremy some props on Michael Goldstone. I wasn't going to, I had done all the music for it and I had the chorus for it. I didn't have the verses for it. And he was like, I really think you should finish this record. And uh, it, it was like, in it back to that record man thing. It was one of those things that out of all the times that he did like, oh, I don't like this mix. I don't like this. And all he did actually kind of convinced me or 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 show enough interest in the song to kind of like push me along to finish it and and you know i'm really grateful for that so i think that like really that kind of record just kind of was off the shelf of fifteen thousand, and then it it became a weird thing where people were buying the cd for a hundred dollars and then like stuff started getting licensed so it was in like accepted and all this other stuff and, and and slowly but it was never on the radio which was weird and it never charted but also thing like a license like so so you think you could dance and just weird things like weird like really blessings would come out of that song and in, in, in that record that made the record come out and live like when it looked like it was <laughs> a mess it is a weird thing like when you think of, there's so many great songs that we, if you didn't look at the chart, you would assume that they were just out of this world. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like Dream On for Aerosmith or something like that, which is, you know, that was like maybe a top 20 record or, or Bruce Springsteen never had a number one song, you know, except for the cover, the Man for Man's cover. You know, like you think of like how all these great, artists where the anecdotes is is that like you you, you assume that they had a lot of hits because you know the songs but just because you know the songs doesn't mean that they were necessarily like traditional hits but over time if you're getting licenses on so you think you can dance how many songs that were released in 2000 of a of an artist that wasn't on the label two years later or sorry 2002 and the the artist wasn't even on the label two years later like how many of those songs stick around you know? Yeah. Um, I feel really fortunate for it. It's like looking back and be like, wow, that, that, oh, that made it, you know, like that, it kind of made it along the way. And it's weird. I just got a license request for sideways for a movie 
I was just like, you know, the song just keeps going. Yeah, I think even now there's some songs that break on social media that are, you know, that are have been around for a long time. It's just the difference of when you broke, when you came out as an artist versus now is that there were aisles in stores. And we'll, and that's really hard for an artist like you who has such an eclectic sound who embraced so many different genres and was embraced by so many different genres. Now that would be a plus. Then it was really hard when you'd walk into like Virgin and they'd put you in, in like a rock section. You're like, what? Like there's a guitar on it, but like, come on. I mean, I, I, my album came out, my first album came out in 2004 and we opened for Jurassic five a bit. And, um, but I remember buying the record in the rock pop section at Virgin and iTunes came out and I want to say 2004 or five and, and they put us under reggae. <laughs> I was like, that was when I realized, Oh, that's it. It is, it's harder sometimes if you sound unique. Yeah. I think anytime you have kind of like you touch, you pull from different genres. Like I think it, it, it's like, it's part of the whole thing because it, it, it's all one music. So it's just, it's, it's sometimes you, you go there and people want to put it, everything in a category. So uh -huh. it, it's kind of easy to categorize stuff. Do you feel like now when you've, you know, you just released, I, and not to skip over, you know, a bunch of albums, but you just released a new album do you feel like it's freeing to to just be? I mean, now people look up Citizen Cope. I mean, there are genres, but I feel like that's got to feel freeing to now be releasing music in the last couple of years in an era where where no one's pigeonholing, holding, holding. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still that because there's playlisting. So I think playlisting can be challenging, especially for somebody like me because then it goes into kind of like songwriter kind of stuff where it's 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 a little different but i think I, i've just been fortunate to have like a lot of really people find the music and they want to come see me play and then also when i put out like i just put out the vinyl of pulling niagara falls and and people bought it directly and it and 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 I made these really cool posters. The artist did like this gelatin thing on them. And it's like, I think it's, it's kind of like a lot of things have become collectible and, and, and it's, it's an interesting thing. The music just kind of, kind of, kind of going on no, no matter what. Why was there the break between releasing music from basically 2012 to 2019? Like that's the longest time from when you first start writing where you actually took this time, at least from releasing music, what was, what was going through your life during that time? And I got into the touring heavy thing and then, and kind of getting into that and then realizing, wow, like that's, it took too much time from me. And then and it was kind of always, I got in this to write and produce and I really didn't get in this to be a performer because that wasn't like, you know, you hear about people who are like, oh, it was my dream ever since I was a kid to be on stage. And when I got on stage for the first time, I just felt so like amazing. And like, you know, I hated that. Like I was, you know, I had a stage fright for years and I guess I had to get over that and and face that, what, what that was about. And did you get over it? Yeah, I mean, I'm still, I'm still not great with it, but I'm, I, yeah, it was, it was debilitating at first. I mean, it was, it was, it was something that, um, I definitely needed to address and like to face. And so, I kind of got deal with that. You know, I still get butterflies, I still feel away, but it's getting stronger on my on my side now. Um, and what was the tactic you used to help get through that? Because that's because you know. I think most performers that aren't crazy uh, fear have this uh, this strange fear attached to being on stage, and you know everyone has to cope with it in certain ways. You know, how do you cope with it? 
Well, I mean, I think I started drinking a lot on the road. Um, but I think what got me over it was, uh, just doing it a lot. And then also kind of being kind of realizing, you know, getting to the point, well, what was I fearing? And it was really that when I had people there going to see me, you know, it was like something that it was just a block, you know, it was like, it wasn't. You know, I wasn't letting people in, and I started to let people in a little bit. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, I we I know we talked about record people. One of the things you did, one of your your albums, at least one, came out on your own record label. Your yeah, your experience having done that. Why? Why did you decide to do that? And I mean, did did all of the albums after Rainwater come out? On, are they all out on Rainwater? Yeah, all of them are on Rainwater. So now you run a record company. Do you feel like you are a good record man? I, for my, I am in the sense but not, I'm probably, I'm probably not, I can't be a record man for myself, you know, so that's kind of difficult to be a record man for myself. But I do see that what it takes to make a record, you know, I, I do admire that quality in people, you know, there's just been, you know, I think it's just, it, it's, it's something that goes along. So I don't, I don't really consider myself a record man because I don't work for, you know, somebody or I haven't started a big company. So do you and have you signed other artists? No, I put some stuff out. Uh, Alice Smith's record. She came out uh, on Rainwater. Yeah. And she, she, and, and so there's been a couple artists. I mean, I'm looking to expand that right now, but I want to have to get a little bit of funding for it. But I, I still, I still am in love with just, great recordings you know i think they're you know it's so weird like when when you're young and you're good at something musically the the general response from people not just in the business but if if you're a good singer and you're younger people are like oh you should sing on stage and if you're good at making music like you should go on stage but so many good musicians are best in a studio still you ended up doing all that touring i thought that that's like that's fascinating that you spent that seven year block just touring having been basically, you know, turning into an aspiring producer songwriter. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was kind of like either, or it was like you either go on the road or you, um, because that's when, you know, a lot of the, the royalties dried up or else. And I kind of had an idea that, the songs would take it. But I, the thing about the road is it doesn't have any, it's not an asset. And, and it's like, not something that like if a management company can have a management company and then sell it to on Capshaw's management company or agency can sell to CAA. And that's all because they have artists. But if I go on the road, I, I, I can't sell citizen coat. You know, it's basically, 
I spend a million dollars on a tour, a million dollars doesn't ever come back except for the fact that like, oh, I, I can go out and make it again. So right. it's not really essentially an asset. It's like, you know, something happens to me, stuff. Yeah, it's so interesting because the music industry always talks about how all the money's in touring. Well, that became a big, that became just a big thing and everyone got in the middle of it. And, you know, that's why this last year is my last tour for a while because it just got to a point where it just got so corporate. And the only asset we could have was our fans, really. And now there's like all these middlemen in between that. They they hold their, um, all the, all the, all the emails and all that stuff. And it's just being... And then those guys get beat up with parking and 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 overpriced drinks, and then they don't yeah. give them their money back, and then it's like makes us look bad, and then it's like crazy charges on this and that, and and then they email them to death for shows that they don't want to do, and they unsubscribe. <laughs> so we lost the customer, you know. So it's like you know. And that's really our biggest asset. And I've, I've always wanted to just ha have a really great performance and, and, and be live. And I got to, you know, I'm feeling really good about playing right now. I, I Like, I'm really glad that I put that time into becoming a performer. Um, and, 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 and realize that this is just all about personal growth, man. It's not about like what I thought it was, you know? So I think, the universe kind of points you in the direction of what you got to learn. And then you hopefully learn it. And if you don't, it takes you seven years on the road. Hmm. <laughs> Do you have a personal life? Yeah, I've got a family. What's that like? It's beautiful. Uh, my daughter just turned 11. Congratulations. Yeah. And her mother is a singer and, um, we like to travel, eat good food, and kick back. When you tour, do you guys all tour together now? We she tours uh, early on. Lulu would tour. My daughter would tour with me a lot, and um, probably now with Alice's thing kind of getting bigger, that maybe we'll be doing shows together, and all of us will be on the road, which yeah. which, which I would really like. Yeah, that's the dream scenario. Yeah. What's next for you having, you know, you've released a couple albums in the last couple, you know, few years and, you know, obviously quarantine, a bunch of things have happened. Now it's like, what what's next for you musically? Uh, I'm going to try to record a live record before I, the end of the year, before I stop touring in 2000 for a while. And then, I've got a bunch of songs that I'm working on and I got um, for the first time we have an independent film that's sent me the actual film. I've got a lot of licenses before, but I've never had a chance to write specifically for a movie. And I'm, I'm doing that right now, which is really cool. Yeah. It feels like, cause your music feels cinematic. Maybe yeah. because of how, in a weird way, how honest it is. It feels cinematic, if that makes sense. And I, that's exciting. What's the movie or can you not say? Well, it's I haven't officially been hired, but I've and so I just basically have been sending a bunch of music out, and and you know I'm not you know it, you got to have thick skin when you're sending movies to, uh, music to movies because most of the stuff they don't really respond to, but then there's something that they that works and and it's like so officially uh, the movie is still not been shot but it's actually got some big people in it which is cool it's not like and, and the movie's really good well let's go um i want to do the next segment which is a five for five i'm going to list five things and right. you know um let's start with your mother wait five you oh you just i'm gonna list five things just tell me what comes off the top of your head word a phrase Something, but I'm starting with your mom because <laughs> you were saying that that's you know she's from Memphis and that's where a lot of the music was that you were into. So let's start with that. Uh, first thing on my mind, 
Beautiful. Marsha Altman. Capitol Records. How about Santana? Uh, our brother Daniel. What is that? Uh, I had a brother Daniel, was stepbrother, and I gave him a Santana record when I was a kid. And that it kind of turned into a, like a weird thing that like it, I ended up being on Santana's album, but I think he was like the connector. How crazy is that? He was a Santana fan. I feel like when you're younger, when when you know all music is sort of mystical, and so to end up on a Santana record like that must have been incredible. Yeah, I, there were definitely forces working. So I don't know. All right, let's go with let's go with your daughter. Um, blessing. And your wife. Superpower. <laughs> like that. Any, anybody who has a child, and I'm I'm new in that game, looks at their uh, can see that uh, can see that pretty clearly. Um, well, dude, man, thank you for doing this. You know, it's I, I don't know if you're aware of how many I guess I can ask you, are you aware of how many people view you as an influence and how many people quote you as still, you know, I feel like your name comes up constantly. Yeah, I mean I I, I think the music is into it was it was kind of weird because I think it it taught people that when I came out that they didn't have to follow a genre and kind of could take whatever they wanted from whatever. And I think that became something that people heard and, and, and people had actual just experiences with the music. And that's, what's kind of cool about not ever being on the charts is that people had their own experience and it wasn't like because of a huge marketing campaign. And I can look in when somebody says, I like your music, I know it's, it's real. It's not because they saw me on a, a television show or, or because they, you know, heard the record pounded down with the million dollar radio campaign, you know, it, it's, it's like that music touched me and, and, and I feel really blessed. What would you tell the kid that recorded, let the drummer kick, you know, the first, major label, like it's after capital, but it's like a song where it's like things are seemingly like could happen and to know where you ended up. What would you tell that kid back in 2002? I think, I think it would be to kind of appreciate the journey and to appreciate the people that are um, to kind of learn just just to to realize that you're already at your destination. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't go, you know, you're chasing something that you already have within you. I love that. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, I've called you one of my influences for a long time, so it's cool to have you on this. Uh, Thank you, man. Congratulations on all the success, man. It's beautiful. Like your discography is crazy, bro. <laughs> Thanks, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, look, if you listen to music that you like, then you end up writing music you like, and you know, we're all in the same, we're all the same family. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, when Marshall hit me up and mentioned you, I was like, oh my god, yeah, absolutely, let's do this. That's so yeah. fun. So, shout out to Marshall. That guy's yeah. Oh, yeah, I love him, man. Marshall Altman. Cool, man. Did, uh, yeah, Ross, congratulations again. It's like been uh, cool to be on your show. I appreciate it, man. And uh, um, and, and let me know. We should, we should, we should link sometime. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks, man. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirchin, Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 